Hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHESS, I would like to welcome you to the CHESS Journal Podcast. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a terrific discussion of the patterns of use of adjunctive therapies in acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. We are fortunate to have Dr. John Laffey and Dr. Nina Kadir as our guests today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Dr. Laffey is a professor of anesthesia intensive care medicine at the School of Medicine of the National University of Ireland and a consultant at Galway University Hospitals. His basic and translational research is focused on acute respiratory distress syndrome and sepsis with a focus on regenerative medicine for the critically ill. Dr. Laffey and his colleagues wrote Patterns of Use of Adjunctive Therapies in Patients with Early, Moderate to Severe Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. Insights from the Lung Safe Study, which is the article that we will be discussing today. Dr. Kadir, along with Dr. Tina Chen, wrote an accompanying editorial. Dr. Kadir is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at UCLA. Her research and clinical interests include ARDS and ICU recovery. For a bit of background for our listeners, the LungSafe study was an international, multi-center, prospective cohort study of patients with severe respiratory failure done in 2014, which aimed to determine the frequency of use of widely available adjuncts like neuromuscular blockade and prone positioning versus other adjuncts needing more specialized equipment like ECMO, inhaled vasodilators, and high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in the first 48 hours of moderate to severe ARDS. Now, Dr. Laffey, you found that 71% of these patients that required invasive ventilation received no adjunctive therapy in the first 48 hours, including widely available ones like prone positioning and neuromuscular blockade. You also noted that only one-third of patients who died received an adjunctive strategy. I found the low use of adjunctive strategies in these patients concerning. Do you have any hypotheses on why that was? Uh, thank you. We we classified, as, as you said already, the adjuncts into those who were widely available, such as neuromuscular blockade and prone positioning, and those that would require uh, more specialized equipment or expertise. And we did expect to see differences in the frequency of use with lesser use of specialized adjuncts. But we found that the underuse of, of neuromuscular blockade and prone positioning was surprising, particularly, I think, the underuse of prone positioning. Now, when we looked at factors associated with uh, the use of adjuncts, uh, we found that things like ARDS recognition and physician staffing ratios uh, were associated with greater adjunct use. And there was also uh, a a geographic pattern uh, with greater use in European high-income countries compared to either uh, other uh, around-the-world high-income countries or middle-income countries. Uh, And so... You know, they're interesting findings because they suggest that this is not really an economic issue and it may be more to do with the familiarity uh, uh, of staff with adjuncts, uh, the culture uh, within intensive care units, 
uh, and what people are comfortable using uh, that tends to uh, decide if an adjunct is going to be used and if it is, then what that adjunct might be. Now, of those who did receive adjunctive strategies, 75% received a single strategy and 25% received more than one adjunct. The most frequently used adjunct was neuromuscular blockade, and that was used as the only adjunct in 69% of those patients. Now, prone positioning was the second most frequently used, but only in 7% of patients, 72% of whom were also receiving neuromuscular blockade. And inhaled vasodilators were used almost as often as in 6% of the patients. ECMO was used in only 1% of the patients, 46% of whom did not receive any other adjuncts. And high-frequency oscillatory ventilation was rarely used in only about half of a percent of the patients. Now, Dr. Kadir, can you please explain some of your points about the importance of prone positioning and the potential reasons for its underutilization? Yes, I think that the underuse of prone positioning is um, a particularly unfortunate finding. Uh, Proceva, which demonstrated that early proning decreases mortality in patients with moderate-severe ARDS, was published seven years ago. And despite that, we're still seeing single-digit percentages of eligible patients being, bro- being proned. Uh, the lack of use of this modality really reflects the disconnect between clinical trials and clinical practice. And the reasons for its lack of use are not well understood. Um, Although it's categorized as a widely available therapy because it doesn't require necessarily specific equipment, um, it does require specific expertise and training of uh, of staff, physicians, nurses, and allied health professionals in order to be used safely um, and frequently. and, you know, other reasons why it may not be used as much as it should are still poorly understood. There's a recent multi-center observational study that showed that MD perception of insufficient levels of hypoxia uh, was the most common reason for not proning. Um, but that, like all research studies, took place at centers that agreed to participate in research. So what's happening in community centers that don't participate in research is an even bigger question in these far-out number academic centers. Um, so that's really a no-data zone. Um, I would say anecdotally, because I work at a referral center, I get calls frequently for transfers from community centers for higher levels of care for ARDS. And when I ask about proning, I very frequently hear that we are not equipped to do that here. So what does that really mean? Um, it means that equipment is probably not the only limiting factor, um, and we really need to identify what these other factors are um, that are preventing its more widespread use. Um, It does seem, though, that in light of COVID-19, proning is becoming more common, so it'll be interesting to see how this crisis changes our practice patterns. Thank you. Now, the majority of those who received specialized adjunctive therapies like ECMO, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, and inhaled vasodilators did not receive prone positioning or neuromuscular blockade. These are two of the most readily available adjunctive therapies, and prone positioning has the most evidence supporting its use. Why do you think they were used so unfrequently compared to these other adjunctives? Dr. Laffey? 
Yeah, I think this is, you know, this is a key issue. And, uh, I mean, our study gives some insight, but, uh, you know, it, there, you know, we don't really have a great understanding. Um, I think that it does speak to what staff are familiar with. So, you know, we talk about uh, prone positioning, and, and I agree with Dr. Kadir's point here, uh, as being, uh, you know, a simple and uh, inexpensive maneuver. Um, but really, it, it, it's more complicated than that, and, and you can underestimate how difficult it is to do. Um, your staff have to be well-trained, uh, and they have to be comfortable and proactive uh, in regard to its use. Because turning a critically ill patient, you know, with lines and tubes requires, uh, you know, a coordinated team where everybody knows their role and they practice it regularly. And you can only do that by either using the technique frequently or by practicing it in a simulated setting. And if prone positioning isn't part of the culture of your ICU and you don't do it frequently, you're going to be reluctant then to do it in the patients who need it most, who are maybe uh, higher risk because of their body habitus or, or, or whatever, and who might really benefit from it. Um, we find in our ICU that our nursing staff actually frequently request that we consider proning a patient. And it's really when your staff take ownership of a maneuver like prone positioning that you know that uh, it will be frequently used. So I see it as a culture as a culture issue. Okay. You also commented on how you did not find evidence for a sequential approach to the use of adjunctive strategies that has been used effectively in other trials. Can you discuss why this is suboptimal? Uh, yes. Uh, so our, our sort of uh, assumption uh, at the start of the analysis was that patients that would receive uh, the more specialized approaches such as ECMO or inhaled vasodilators would first receive a, a one of the more widely uh, ad, uh, available adjuncts uh, and that there would be some kind of a, of a sequence, right, progressing uh, through the different adjuncts that were available. But we did not see that. Uh, we, we saw the opposite, in fact. Uh, and what we saw is that most patients who received ECMO or who received uh, inhaled vasodilators were not first uh, trialed with uh, with prone positioning, for example. And, uh, you know, this, this is suboptimal because you, you, you really should have an integrated approach, uh, and there are patients who are probably receiving ECMO um, who might not have required it if they responded first to prone positioning. And a, where ECMO is a scarce resource, which it is in, in most, uh, if not all, healthcare systems, uh, making sure that the, the patient who really needs it most uh, is important, and therefore we do need an, a, a sequential approach to the use of adjuncts. You also found that those patients that received adjunctive therapies were more likely to have their ARDS recognized, to be younger and sicker, to have pneumonia, to be more difficult to ventilate, and to be in a European high-income country. I was particularly interested in the early identification of ARDS, as ARDS is an under-recognized condition, and earlier recognition was associated with increased use of adjunctive therapies that may improve outcomes. Can you explain more about the importance of early recognition of ARDS? Uh, yes. When we uh, designed the LungSafe study, uh, we, we looked at previous uh, uh, cohort studies that had uh, had. Uh, you know, looked at patients with ARDS, and 
we found that uh, the first thing that, that had to happen was the clinician had to recognize the condition. And uh, there was this large disparity in apparent incidence of ARDS, uh, especially between Europe and North America. Uh, and so we wanted to address that. So we did not actually directly ask the clinician uh, the, the criteria. We are, we are whether they had ARDS or not. We asked about the criteria, and then we asked them on day one uh, as part of a question if the patient had ARDS. And what we found is that only 40% uh, of patients were recognized as having ARDS on day one. Uh, and the reason we found this was important was that it did appear to be associated with different management. So patients who had their ARDS recognized early were more likely to receive lung protective ventilation, particularly with higher PEEP, and they were more likely to receive adjunctive strategies like prone positioning. And we think that the, the under-recognition is, is understandable because of the complexity of the diagnostic uh, criteria uh, and you know, the, the difficulty in, in managing very complex, critically ill patients, and that we need to develop strategies where we explicitly search for the criteria for ARDS in these patients, because we know that uh, if, we, if we recognize it earlier, it does change how we manage the patients. Now, Dr. Kadir, they also found that differences in geoeconomic region and clinician staffing ratios were associated with different rates of adjunctive therapy use. How can we possibly explain those differences, and are there potential strategies to improve those disparities? Well, I think in terms of staffing ratios being associated with different rates of adjunctive therapy use, um, that's unsurprising since some therapy is, of course, more labor-intensive than others. Um, but I think it is important to understand the granular detail surrounding um, how staffing issues impact the use of specific therapies. Um, it's possible like that something like neuromuscular blockade may be used more heavily if staffing numbers are inadequate um, as it takes more work to wake patients up than it does to leave them sedated and paralyzed. And, you know, the converse is true for things like proning or ECMO. Um, I thought the finding that even among high-income countries, there were different rates of adjunctive use in European versus non-European countries. This suggests that the disparities are not just related to cost. Um, and in that regard, I think health systems factors need to be further explored. Um, Dr. Laffey mentioned cultural differences, which I also, I also think are very important to understand further. Um, and by cultural differences, I'm referring to variation in physician beliefs about the efficacy of different types of therapies. I think we all know that a certain degree of ICU care is dependent on the style of the intensivist. Some are into ECMO, some, are, some paralyze everyone, and we all see this in our hospitals. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see how these beliefs are variable variably present in different parts of the world. Uh, I think that actually would be a fascinating study. Now, you noted that patients who receive specialized adjunctive therapies were similar to those that received the more widely available adjuncts like neuromuscular blockade and pronin positioning, alone in terms of ARDS severity and ventilator settings. Do you have a hypothesis on why some therapies were then chosen over others, Dr. Laffey? Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, the point uh, Dr. Clear makes about the staffing ratios is an important one. So, you know, the, if you look at the association, it's actually diametrically opposite for physicians and nurses. So if you had less nurses 
per bed, you are more likely to use an adjunct. And that probably mainly relates to muscle relaxation. Whereas if you had more physicians per bed, you are more likely to use adjuncts. So there, there's there's effects of staffing patterns that we need to tease out in a bit more detail. Uh, there are also clear, uh, as we've spoken about already, geographic uh, differences. So prone positioning, for example, is far higher use in Europe. And that may have something to do with the fact that the science and the evidence behind prone positioning was developed in Europe. Uh, and uh, and that the you know the, the groups that led that work w- would have been very influential uh, in terms of um, translating through to practice, uh, and we come back to this idea of culture. I think where you know units uh, use adjuncts that they're familiar with in situations. So you know ECMO is not a widely available technology, but if it's in your particular intensive care unit, you may be far more comfortable putting a patient on ECMO than you are turning that patient prone. And so we have to recognize those uh, factors, I think, that go into the decision-making uh, and try to understand them so that we can then address them and develop a more systematic approach to, to adjunct use. Now, Dr. Kadir and Dr. Lafay, if there is one thing that you could have our listeners take away from this discussion, what would it be, Dr. Kadir? I think a big takeaway is that clinical practice has not yet caught up with evidence-based society guidelines. We have a number of tools to help us manage ARDS, but we're not using them as much as we could be. We need to better understand why this is happening as this disconnect between clinical trials and clinical practice is a potentially modifiable factor in the mortality of our ARDS patients. Excellent. Dr. Laffey? I would say that we should, if it was one thing, it would be to think about introducing a training program for the use of adjuncts in your ICU, especially for prone positioning. It's easy to underestimate uh, the work required to have a robust uh, prone positioning program in your ICU. Um, we said it, it's, uh, it's widely available, and it is, uh, in terms of being not requiring specialized equipment. Um, but it does require significant training. So I, I would not underestimate that, uh, and I would look to bring it in in a formal way in your ICU. Any other closing thoughts? Throw in more. All right. Well, a big thank you to Drs. Laffey and Kadir for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time.